If you've been following along to Modern Manhood, I mentioned in episode one that I joined my first men's organization, Men Edmonton, back in 2015. However, Men Edmonton wasn't the first introduction to a sort of men's community. About five years prior, I was single and I was feeling pretty down on myself, knowing that I wasn't really having the best luck with women. And my self-confidence was uh, pretty shot. (laughs) So a friend of a friend said, I want to help you. And he bought me the book, The Game. And The Game, it's about pickup culture. It was a weird book. It didn't really stick on me. However, that wasn't the same for a lot of other people. That book became so popular, it started being packaged with a little pick-me-up-how-to guide. <laughs> I, I, I swear to you that this happened. I know it's because my friend bought me the actual package with the book and the guide itself. Well, this book popularized a subculture that bubbled in the internet a long time. A community of guys talking about basically how to be a guy but in a very sexist way. This beget other subcultures that were sexist as well. And all of them were culminating into an online being called the Manosphere. Now, the Manosphere was the driving force of misogyny on the internet in its heyday. And it will inform the discourse about gender, especially about men, for years later. So, this is the history of the manosphere and in the history of modern manhood. I personally didn't hear the term the manosphere until about the time of Gamergate. Do you remember that? We'll talk about Gamergate. And it's weird because I did want to talk about masculinity and the effects it had on what I thought was my gender roles at that time. However, the masculinity discourse was completely taken over by this conversation. This idea to talk about being a man, I mean, this was the only avenue you had. It was either trying to have sex or making fun of women. And that was it. It was a weird time and a place to be. And I understood later on as to why when guys stumbled onto a pro-feminist men's organization or a conversation about masculinity that wasn't misogynist, that they thought it was a brand new thing. Because the Manosphere was the only game in town, or, or so it seemed. This time, this era, not only encapsulates a lot of what's wrong with the masculinity discourse now, it also brings forth the violent tactics that other internet vigilantes would use, mainly doxing and harassment. Well, this episode was an interesting trip to memory lane. And for this episode, I invited my wife to be the guest. I thought she'd be perfect for it because she's not as extremely online as I am. So she may not know this history as some others would. And I wanted to get her unfiltered take on it. It's also she's so introspective and thoughtful that she may have bigger insights than uh, I might have. And maybe bring a bigger uh, personal side people and these events so without further ado here is myself and my wife virginia talking about the manosphere hello welcome to another episode of modern manhood this is episode five we'll talk a lot about 
the 2000s today, and specifically the rise of the manosphere. And I have a very special guest here today. This is the first time I'm doing this with my beautiful wife, Virginia. <laughs> how are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You said you were feeling a bit nervous a little today. bit yeah yeah but it's okay we've been talking about doing this for a long time so yeah yeah it's good i'm glad that you're doing this and also because you you said you mentioned that you were that you were in university around this time like the mm -hmm. 2000 early 2000s right mm -hmm. what were you doing then oh that's not true actually i was in high school early 2000s but i started university in 2004 I think, okay so yeah, it's around this around this era yeah i would say this yeah, because we honestly started in 2004. So oh, perfect. This is perfect. <laughs> and your background is in psychology and in sociology. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a lot of degrees. You have a lot of accomplishments. Yeah, a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about this specific episode, because not only is it a lot of like internet stuff, but you, you know, you mentioned earlier that you're like, I am <laughs> worried that this is going to make me feel terrified for the world afterward. Mm, well, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. It's tough stuff, right? Like it seems yeah. kind of irrational and unpredictable and that can be scary. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And it's definitely a lot of his stuff is culture worry. It's very like, it's interesting because it precludes a lot of it to what's happening right now in 2022 as we record this in September, 2022. <clears throat> but this was 2004. This almost 20 years ago you wow. know what i mean wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah when you put it that way okay <laughs> at the same time though like this was before facebook this is before twitter yeah this is before a lot of the social media networks also before things like me too so exactly right yeah however there was doesn't mean that there was a lot of there wasn't people talking and thinking about feminism can you think of your life in 2004? Like, what were you doing in 2004? You said you were starting university. Mm -hmm. What were you listening to? Who were you talking to? Like, put back yourself in 2004. What were you doing? I remember listening to The Deers. Yes. Great band. Mm -hmm. Love The Deers. was training for the distress line at that time mm -hmm. and I think I was planning on doing a psych degree and going into med school and then that switched <laughs> and honestly whenever I'm in school I just sort of my head goes under that big academic boulder and, cloud yeah and yep. I I kind of zone out of the rest of the world for a while so I got bits and pieces of some of the stuff that's been going on mm -hmm. or that we'll be talking about today you said you also had a blog, right? Uh-huh, yeah. When, 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 when was this? That must have been back in high school. Yeah, or like early university. Early university. Early my first degree, yeah. Okay, so this is around that Just time. Just around that time. Yeah, mm -hmm. perfect. I also had a blog around this time, mm. too. Yes. What was uh, your blog about? Music, right? Kind of like it was just like personal stuff. It was just like I think everybody had like a blog. They were just talking about their life. Yes, around this time. That's and what mine was too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you told me about your blog, and I think it's really 
fun. <laughs> like, tell yeah. me about your blog. Like, what were you doing? So it was important to me to be succinct. And I, every post that I did was a one-liner. Mm-hmm. And I just would post about whatever was relevant. Like, I remember the Killers album came out and I was like, put down a bunch of their lyrics. And then I just wrote like one line at the end about my... Your experience of it. Yeah, I, was, yeah. I think I said, I am slayed, which I thought was <laughs> cheesy. I knew it was cheesy, but I thought it was a little bit. You were ahead of the time. At the time. Yeah. But this one liner, I had a friend during university say, Oh, you were the original Twitter. Yeah. Because that was prior to Twitter. And yeah. And he was like, I, I would like to be that succinct. And he is not, even to this day. That's not really relevant to anything. But yeah. no, it doesn't matter. But it's, but it's, it's, I, I want to get the idea of like, I want to try to put listeners into that headspace of like, this is where we were <laughs> around that time, right? Mm-hmm. Like 2004 as well, too. If you think about 2004, that was after 9-11. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people were a little anxious about international politics, like mm-hmm. specifically because we were having the war in Afghanistan and then we were having the war in Iraq yeah. around that time. Yes, yeah. And 2004 specifically was the the second election of George W. Bush. Right. Yes. So everyone was kind of like, fuck Bush, like yeah. screw this, blah, blah. Yeah. Like yeah. Bowling for Columbine came out around like right. a little bit afterwards. Mm-hmm. This is also after Columbine as well too. Columbine happened in 2000. So, you know, I, I remember talking about the 90s because I lived through the 90s being kind of like a, an era of like, it felt like false stability. Like there was a sense of like, mm. everything is going okay. Like Bill Clinton was in power. Mm-hmm. Or like, and we had like the first Bush, but then we had Clinton. And, you know, we had like the biggest scandal was like the Monica Lewinsky thing. Yeah. And you're like, whatever. Which really isn't, like, like it shouldn't have been a big deal. Yeah, but. exactly. Mm-hmm. But then the 2000s came. And then especially after 9-11, people just kind of like, kind of amped up. or like, oh, crap. Like this is something real and could happen, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. Do you remember 9-11, by the way? Mm-hmm, I do. do what, what were you doing? I went into, I was in high school and I went into, we, I was at a self-paced school, so we had different floors mm-hmm. and no classrooms or classes. And so you would go and do your work in this big open area. And I remember the teachers rolled out TVs and we just got to watch what was happening. It was such a, it was a weird day. It was day. a weird day. Yeah. It sure was. <laughs> I remember I was in university around that time, 2001, and... Uh, I like I went to the University of Alberta, and if you've gone to the University of Alberta, if you go to Hub Mall, which is like the the main kind of like if there's a bunch of like like smaller apartments, and at the bottom there's like little like restaurants and stuff like that. But at the top there's like windows that you could see like windows mm-hmm. as well too. And I remember everybody was just like looking up, oh. a lot of looking <laughs> little people looking no. up, yeah. <laughs> because it was it was scary. Like everyone was just talking about it. It was like a Big, big thing. Yeah, kind of unprecedented in our part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So that put a lot of fear into people's heads. And I think that put a lot of anxiety out into the internet. And as well, too, there's a lot of this idea of the internet, how it was written at that time, was very ironic, was very ironic and post ironic, meaning like we were just kind of talking. Just saying things like on the internet without really much recourse mm-hmm. on it. You know what I mean? Like people. Well, it was new. Like that yeah. sort of dialogue-y internet. Was it 2.0? Is that what that part was called? The 2.0 was the social media. 
Yeah. So this is, this is Web 1.0. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is like very, like the, the language around that time was very ironic, I think. Like this is around a time of like, you know, people not like, it was like that, like after like Gen X and people like, oh, I don't care about like politics and stuff like that. I just want world peace and stuff and things, but also mm -hmm. like very kind of self-deprecating at the same time, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. <clears throat> Wasn't the whole we just want world peace thing happening in the 60s as well? Yeah, exactly. So and then like throw back to that. Yeah. And it was kind of like small little like backlash to being like, like, ugh, like, like world peace seems so like cringy, which is kind of, yes, <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of revolution kind of thing. But it wasn't to the point now where like this is before the economic crash in 2008. So people were still feeling like there's still a little bit of hope in the world. Mm -hmm. And anyways. That's around the time <clears throat> that we're talking about. So let's start with 2004. So <clears throat> in 2004, an article in the New York Times popped up titled, He Aims, He Shoots, Yes. It's about a profile of a rider name being embedded for a year in the pickup community. Now, again, if we think about it, 2004, we didn't have Facebook. We didn't have social media like the ones we do now. So word of this pickup artistry community was all either done by paying someone to teach you through some website or as the writer puts up, by the way, do you know what the pickup community is? Yes, I have been the recipient of some <laughs> seriously of an attempted pickup. Yes. Really? Tell me more. I think I've told you this story before. So I mm -hmm. was hanging out at a cafe one day yeah. and this guy was sitting on a couch nearby and working. And then he like caught my eye and called me over and, or no, he came over to my table, I think, and was like, hey, can I ask your opinion on something? I'm just doing some work and I'm like a web designer and I just wanted your opinion. And I was like, okay, sure. So I went over and he was like, yeah, I just like doing something for like, I can't remember what he called it, like some hippy dippy eco group or something. And I have these like eight different website faces. Can you tell me which one you like the best? And he just kind of shuffled through them. And I was like, oh, like I gave him my opinion and he was like kind of making small talk. And then at the end, he asked me like what I was reading and I said, oh, I'm reading about feminism. And he just got quiet for a second. Um, and he was like, okay, well, thanks. Have a good rest of your day. And I, <laughs> so I went back to my table. And then about half an hour later, I saw him do the same thing to a different woman in the cafe. So, and then later I found out that he was causing some controversy in the right. sort of activist circles that I was part right. of at the time. Right for this behavior yeah i remember yeah they told me about this person that's true that's, that's yeah. really funny <laughs> to promote the the art of the pickup oh, pickup artistry mm -hmm. quote unquote pickup artistry okay so you have an idea about this mm -hmm. so the writer puts it quote so usually you'd have to learn this through some website or as the writer puts it but the lucky few able to wade through enticements to meet models now may find one of the free Usenet groups, internet mailing list, or message boards where hundreds of men labor day and night to turn the art of seduction into an exact science. From New York to London to Croatia, places my reporting took me, many of these men meet offline in groups known as lairs to discuss tactics and techniques before going out to bars and clubs to put their theories to practice. Ew. Layers. <laughs> Layers, right? Yikes. That's a gross word. <laughs> and of course, at the time, people took on pseudonyms. The PUAs, or pickup artistry, so I'll call them PUAs from now on, did the same. People like, <laughs> these are the names, Juggle, Form Handler, or Chump. Mm. 
The writer says he pays 500 bucks to be taken under the wing by one of the best self-proclaimed pickup artists at the time, a young man named Eric von Markovic, or better known as Mystery. Now, Mystery is a former Canadian magician, <laughs> has been part of the pickup artistry and industry for about seven years at that time. He was a late bloomer, and because he was a magician and was getting fed up with being rejected time after time from getting a job, he developed a system where he was able to display his personality before someone even said no, and it worked. Cool. <laughs> he then applied the system to pick up women. Mystery is one of the originators of a lot of the tried and true PUA techniques, such as a nag, meaning a well-placed backhanded compliment. Like, for example, your nose kind of wriggles when you laugh. Have you ever noticed that? Mm. That's a nag, mm. among others. Why were... Sorry, go ahead. Sounds feels a little manipulative, doesn't it? Absolutely. This is the whole point. It's manipulative. <laughs> it's the whole point is manipulation. <laughs> Why were so men attracted to this? Well, the writer in the piece says that the reason why these PUA started, quote, some students in their 20s, 30s, and even 40s said they were virgins who had exhausted most other options to try to meet women. Quote, my goal is to get comfortable with myself and show who I truly am, said a 20-year-old virgin from Long Beach, California, known as Sky. I feel like a Ferrari that is stuck on first gear when I know I have a sixth gear. A millionaire known as Slippery joined the community to find a wife, and he soon succeeded. The first child is due this week. And one pickup artist who did not want to be identified said his entire goal is to be committed three-way relationship consisting of himself and two beautiful women. Oh, man. <laughs> Which, I mean, okay. I'm not, not opposed to, like, unconventional relationships. No, of course not. No, like, polyamory is, is you know, it's, it's a thing that happens and uh -huh. that's, that's to each their own. But at the same time, it's really funny. He's like, myself and two beautiful women. That's what I want. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like the keyword there. Yeah. The women in the story seem a little shell-shocked that this was happening, including some of the PUA's girlfriends. Quote, juggler's girlfriend of a year and a half, a 21-year-old student, said his involvement with the community actually caused problems in the relationship. The second or third time we saw each other, he said he had his job and taught guys how to pick up girls. She said, speaking on condition of anonymity. So I got on the web and found the community on my own. My initial reaction was disbelief. But the more I read, the more I felt there was a huge objectification of women. And I started having pretty big problems with the entire community and his involvement in it. That's a very, you know, normal thing to <laughs> feel when you see these kind of, like you said, manipulation, right? Mm -hmm. However, the writer of the story seemed pretty intrigued by the whole thing and even mentioned as his personality completely changed while he was writing this. Mystery was an interesting person and his community is interesting and he seems very at peace with trying to impress women and the skills and technique that they use. The writer's name was Neil Strauss, and he uses this article and his time with the PUA community to write his best-selling book, The Game. Have you ever heard of The Game? Mm, I don't. I don't know for sure. You don't know for sure? That's totally fine. Yeah. It's. It's. If you ask, I think a lot of guys around this time, two thousand, they would know about this book, The Game. Yeah. It looks kind of like. Like, if you look at it, it looks kind of like a Bible. Oh, <laughs> it, it's like, it's like binded in this like leather bound thing. And it's, uh, it has like gold lettering. Yeah. It's called the game. It's all about this pickup artistry. Like this guy, Neil Strauss, embedded into this pickup community mystery himself is actually going to like teach him through this method. A very, very popular book mm -hmm. at the time. So it's, it's a long memoir of this time being a, a pickup artist and how he slept with so many women and met so many people. Now, mind you, the pickup artistry and seduction community has been around since the 80s by this time by people like Ross Jeffries, 
However, this particular time, the writer hit upon hidden community because of the internet that was thriving. The game, which came out in 2005, is unique because one of the first books of its generation talking about this pickup industry and how the internet really made this take off. The game, as you know, popularized terms like negging and peacocking. Do you know what peacocking is? Mm, well, I'm assuming it's like just strutting around and showing off. Like I'm not really sure. Yeah, it's starting after showing off, but it's also putting, doing something, putting yourself that is kind of an attention grabber or a conversation starter. Mm. So for example, Mystery would put on this weird hat. Oh, and interesting. Yeah, and have like big, like a big feather, yeah. like like a peacock. Yeah. <laughs> and people would be attracted to this and he would like, people would ask questions about this guy as conversation starters, like icebreakers. Oh, okay. But also, like, it would also show to other men that I am different and better than you. <laughs> so it's not just about getting the women, it's about standing out and one-upping other guys? Yeah, absolutely. It's gaining confidence, right? It's mm -hmm. gaining confidence. And even though Strauss spends much of his time in the book talking about how much time he devoted sleeping with women and tallying up all his exploits, in the end of the book, he realizes that these guys are kind of losers and spending your life doing this just kind of sucks. Mm. Strauss later on realizes that the more people heard about the game than read it, and somehow the game became more kind of like the Bible of PUAs. Even though, like I said, if you see it, it kind of does look like a Bible. Strauss admits that the game was misunderstood because he was kind of young and naive too. So in an Atlantic article, Neil Strauss, 10 years after the game, he says, quote, I even knew that it was about low self-esteem. Even when I wrote it, I didn't think it would be a guide. I thought it'd be a book about male insecurity. But now coming on the other side of it, I can see how there may be unconscious forces operating on me that made me so obsessed. And even when I thought the game was over, it still had its hold on me. Okay. So, so, okay. So at the time he wanted to write it because he, why? Like he wanted to share the stuff, yep. but now he's like, no, I was just trying to write an expose on male insecurity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think he's, what would you call it? Retconning? You ever heard the term retcon? <laughs> I think so, but. It's kind of like, like something happens accidentally. Like my famous thing of like retconning is like when you watch the first Star Wars mm -hmm. and there's a scene where Stormtrooper just bops his head on a thing and it just goes, ow. It just like falls. <laughs> and it's kind of funny. Everyone thinks it's like, it's an error, right? It's an mm -hmm. act. It's a legit error <laughs> in the movie. But George Lucas later on is like, oh, no, that was actually on purpose because the, the stormtroopers are all clones and the clones are not really smart and blah, blah, blah. Oh. And so that's retconning. Right. They just like, just admit that it was an error in the movie. It's, it's funny. It's okay. <laughs> you don't need to see, you don't need to do this. Yeah. I think this is what Neil Strauss is doing. He's kind of retconning the game being like, oh, actually, I was writing about male insecurity and like this idea. But no, he. Well, and I think it's interesting because this, if someone were. Hmm. that insecure maybe he actually just didn't notice because i think folks who are insecure tend to be very self like internally focused mm -hmm. and so maybe he actually didn't realize how he was coming across to other people yeah not to you know i also think that the game suffers from the same thing that fight club suffers that i think fight club is a little bit more nuanced in its way because people love fight club for for like Tyler Durden's character, right? Mm -hmm. Like he is this like anti-capitalist, like telling guys to just fight yourself out of problems kind of thing. Mm -hmm. In the end of the movie, you kind of see like that that message is wrong, and this this anarchist that anarchist tensions is can be really dangerous. Like that's the whole message of Fight Club at the end. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing in the game, right? Like he goes through this community and he kind of shows everybody that like this is actually like things that work. 
and and to pick up girls and stuff like that. At the end of the book, he does kind of have a realization of being like, yeah, these people are not like the best kind of people. But I don't think people get to that point. <laughs> have you read the book? I have read bits and pieces of the book. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So there's like a, there is a sort of full circle thing at the end. Yeah, but it's okay. small. Okay. It's a small arc at the end mm-hmm. being like where Strauss kind of like has like an introspection for himself. And he's like, I've already spent so much time writing this book. I can't just scrap everything that I've written. Even exactly. Though I'm seeing things differently by the end of it. Yeah. And it's an interesting book if you look at it that way as mm-hmm. it's like this, this, this weird you know, subculture that's going on, but it's, it's taken on a life of its own. Yeah. And also because he kind of showed it like that this was actually really cool and interesting because he thought at the time that was really cool, interesting until he kind of like stepped out of it. Mm -hmm. So I think he's kind of being naive and saying that this is, that this was about male insecurity. I don't like, I think he was really stuck in the subculture. And then he, once he kind of got got out of it, he was a little Uh, bit more understood to that. So, it's an interesting book. However, this be- the game became kind of like people's entrances into the pickup artistry community. Which is, it's so interesting. I'm just thinking about how, and I can't think of any other examples of this right now, but like you've got like a figure that you can sort of idealize and then use as an example of like what's potential, like what's possible mm-hmm. and and how you could potentially be in the world, and then you just run with it, right? Like, yeah. it speaks to part of you. But it's it's a very black and white sort of I- idealized person or process, right? So it's not really – you don't see the the tough days that they went through or, yep. like, the insecurities or doubts that they had, but you can latch on to that. I just – I remember I had this friend once who would, like – she ran stairs, I think, like, three times a week and, like, did a set of stairs on her work we had to work every day and walked to work and did all these fitness things and got up early. And I was like, I've never met somebody in real life who does that. Mm-hmm. I didn't really realize it was possible before, mm-hmm. even though part of me was like, oh, like I would like to be more physically active. Right. So that sort of empowered me. Yeah. Just knowing that there was another real human out there, not just, you know, I don't know. Yeah. No. People on the internet who are like doing that, like a real human in my world. Yeah. So that's, it was inspirational. Yeah. I think I think that's a good point of being like this is not even as inspirational but aspirational. Like mm-hmm. this is something that I can do. You know what yeah. I mean? Like this is something that yeah. could work for me. When well. in reality that was just sort of like a, a snapshot of his life experience and like one point in time and one approach that he had to doing that kind of well, to connecting with women. Yeah. And not necessarily like meant to be, well, you know, a allegedly guide. Yeah. meant to be a guide <laughs> yeah. or anything like long term or like yeah, taking you to any sort of like final destination. It was just. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. So Neil Strauss wrote a later book called The Truth about his sex addiction and how it took control of him. But he still understands how the game really gave people the wrong impression. However, does he regret it? In his words, quote, honestly, there are things that are that all people should really understand, which is able to see the social conventions and rules by which people operate and understand them is a good thing. So that when on Tinder or or in text, someone's giving you a hint to ask them out when you're not getting that after four times, they kind of give up on you as an idiot. So it's good to see that. And it's good to know how to start a conversation and be interesting. And it's good to know the signals. Before the game, I think women were interested in me and I just didn't realize it. I thought, why would they be interested in me? They, they must do this to all the guys. So I think the understanding is great to that degree. And I think it's a nice dichotomy, the difference between understanding the rules and then trying to bend and distort them for your own gratification. Mm. 
So yeah, he's kind of like, I understand what people kind of got the wrong impression. However, I also think that guys needed a little bit more self-confidence and needed to understand what was going on when women were talking to them too. So mm -hmm. and I've heard that from people. Yeah. For sure. So that must be like the audience that that tapped into. Yeah, absolutely. Like the way that you're going about it. Like it's manipulative, right? Yeah. Like you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. However Strauss felt about the game and the life of PUAs, the game gave a spotlight to the subculture that a lot of guys got hooked on. Mystery, the main character of the game, besides Neil, actually gets a reality TV show called The Pickup Artist on VH1 in which Mystery would guide some guys to help them pick up women with weekly challenges. This actually became a reality show. Last season on The Pickup Artist. I just feel so out of my comfort zone when I approach a girl. I don't approach girls. A man named Mystery took eight lovable losers. I'm petrified of trying to go up to a woman. And turn them into Casanovas. I get it, I know what's going on. <laughs> I'm like Neil from The Matrix. I am the one. Now, he's back. I am Mystery. Mystery right now is on now. It's 50 years old and I still think trying to do the <laughs> pickup artistry thing. And clearly apologetic with a hint of all like, that's all in the past now charm about the game and some of the worst parts about it. He claims he wants to be a better, more progressive type of pickup artist right now. Is uh, that that's like an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> a progressive pickup artist. Pickup artist, right? Like, I know, right? Like, if you really have to think about this, like, like through a feminist lens, it's like, you shouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. But the game made popular the subculture of the pickup artist and in turn gave the spotlight to one of the most notorious pickup artists who gave rise to the anti-feminist manosphere, Rush V. You ever heard of Rush V? Maybe. Again. I don't know. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about Rush V. I'm I'm learning a lot during this yeah. <laughs> this, this conversation here. It's so. good. That's good. good. This is this yeah. is the point. I want to see if I can try and pronounce his name. Darius 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 Balizade. Balizade. Darius Balizade, most commonly known as Rushvi, was born in 1979 to an Iranian and Armenian mother. He graduated from 2001 with a degree in microbiology. However, during this time he began blogging about his many attempts at having sex with women. Now, remember, this is the time of people like Tucker Max, you know, who Tucker Max is. Uh, yeah. I hope you serve beer in hell. You ever heard of that book? Yeah. Yeah, that guy. And when the game was popular. So things like this were really popular, even though they still got a lot of backlash and controversy. And if you want a better understanding how this type of stuff became popular, please read the media guy. I'm turned neo-philosopher Ryan Holiday's excellent book. Trust me, I'm lying. You showed me this book. Mm -hmm. He talks a lot about how the marketing of I hope you serve beer in hell. Yeah. Basically, what Holiday says is that he used these hate clicks, this controversy, to drum up interest. The bigger the controversy, the more eyes get to see it. And because this was at the start of the internet journalism, blogging not only was a new form, but also very unregulated and easy to manipulate. Mm -hmm. This also, actually, you've, you've read Trust Me, I'm Lying. Mm -hmm. Is there any other things that you might say about that book? So, again, this is a long time ago. I don't yeah. totally remember. But I'm just thinking about how, generally speaking, like with social media and Web 2.0 being so new, kind of at this time, we didn't have a lot of like opportunity at that point yet to have social norms figured out around it and etiquette. And so now I know that you do a lot of work with parents around teaching children about, and even parents about mm -hmm. like, oh God, my brain's not working very well today. Like being critical and savvy on the internet, right. right? 
I read this really interesting article once when I was in communication school, which is another life that I've led, yeah. where this woman was arguing that, and I thought this was a really compelling argument, that people, people because the internet is so new and they're exposed to so much more information and so many different types of people than they're used to being exposed to, they are like basically overwhelmed and freaking out and don't know like how to deal with all this difference and so you get people who are like like upset by it or afraid or confused by it people who don't have maybe great social skills who are lashing out at difference and then you get these other people who are trying to silence them and be i guess like overly politically correct and those folks are just trying their best to protect the people who are being attacked initially for being different right but they, nobody really knows how to do that effectively or respectfully. Mm-hmm. And it's because there is so much, and this is, I think, changing now because it's been a little bit longer, but especially at the beginning, there was so much new information out there that everybody was kind of like, what the heck? Like, yeah. How do I yeah. deal with this? How do I think about it? How do I interact with it? How do I talk about it with other people? And how do I like transpose those social etiquette like the rules and like the practices that I have around conflict resolution or respectful conversation or like engaging with different ideas. How do I translate those from real life one-to-one conversation or even like conversations with my social group to this broader internet place where I'm talking with strangers and people I don't know the background of. (laughs) So there's a lot of assumptions that we have to make or like not make and just wait and like be curious about so it it just it's it's been a learning process and evolutionarily she the author of this article equated it to like back when the tele the telegram started okay yeah yeah. because people then would have had no idea prior to that what life was like in other parts of even their country or yeah you know yeah for sure so it's just been a real i guess evolutionarily right like Like very high this new technology it's been a huge shift for us it's a gigantic leap yeah. And yeah, and even when you think about this in regards to like Web 1.0, which is the blogging area to Web 2.0, which is social media, that is also a huge leap too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because during this time, if you weren't even looking for this stuff, you wouldn't find it. Like, mm-hmm. like this is much harder to to kind of just like uh, accidentally drop into. Yeah. Like is much easier to do that now to just kind of accidentally drop into these kind of subcultures, right? And I don't even know that you could have really had a, like a like a real-time dialogue about some of these issues. People mm-hmm. could comment on your blog if you let them, like yep. if you made them that, that an option. But but I remember getting in trouble once, I think on Facebook, for commenting too much on somebody's post. This was back when Facebook started. <laughs> yeah. They were like, use Messenger for that instead. They're like, we don't want too many posts. Oh, that's and so, so funny. <laughs> yeah, and so I just, because of bandwidth, like practical right. limitations, right? right? Like totally. it, it would have been harder to have an actual conversation especially if you got heated about something yeah for sure so there was more space more of a pause before people reacted Uh yeah totally yeah totally no i agree i totally agree also i wanted to say that this was around the start of the rise of vice magazine which we talked about in earlier episodes which actually we'll talk about in a later episode yeah we'll talk about this in a later episode the next episode we'll talk about vice magazine politically incorrectness was not only seen but also it seemed cool. So people like Tucker Max and then later Rush V became known and popular. Tucker Max, very politically incorrect person. Man, straight up, I don't know, he's an awful person. 
So Rush V starts blogging anonymously. He starts a blog called the DC Bachelor, where he shared his stories, his technique, and whatnot. These became really popular and then decided to start publishing under his name in 2006. He decided to quit microbiology and puts all of his time to blogging and then publishing his first book in 2007 called Bang, the pickup Bible that helps you get more lays. Mm. What a title. Mm -hmm. By 2008, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Roosh V Forum was about 31,000 members strong. Do you know what was written in the first and probably most popular book, Bang? All right, let's take it from a prominent MRA and Manosphere historian, David Fertrell, and his excellent website, We Hunted the Mammoth. This is from an article titled, Are Roosh V's Bang Books How to, Gui How to Guides for Rape? Quote, most of the bang books are country-specific guides offering Roosh's are insights into each country's nightlife, dating moors, and women. The best quote, this is from the book, the best way to describe a Ukrainian girl's personality is that of a corpse, wow. explains in the bang Ukraine. Quote, they really don't show any emotion, interest, or spark when you first approach them. They just stand still with their eyes darting around. This is Rushvi's words. Right. Along those country-based guides, Bang also talks about some of the sexual events and details, and some of them, if we take them to be real, can be con constituted as rape. And I warn you to the next passages are explicit. Quote, while walking to my place, I realized how drunk she was. In America, having sex with her would have been rape since she couldn't have legally given her consent. It didn't help matters that it was I was relatively sober, but I can't say I cared or even hesitated. I won't rationalize my actions, but having sex is what I do. Hmm. If a girl is willing to walk home with me, she's going to get the dick no matter how much she was drunk. We moved to my bed. I got her down to her bra and panties, but she keeps saying no, no. I was so turned on by her beauty and petite figure that I told myself she's not walking out of my door without getting fucked. At that moment, I accepted the idea of getting locked up in a Polish prison to make it happen. Wow. Kind of goes on like this. There's a lot more. I don't want to get into a lot of it, mm -hmm. but you kind of get the idea mm -hmm. of Rushvi and his his way of talking about things. I'm making a grimace face right now. I know. I, your face is just like awful. It is awful. This is like Rushvi is, I would say, like Neil Strauss opened the door. Rushvi just like, like yeah. head first into it without any like care or empathy or anything and just kind of just do this, right? Which is, again, I'm just going back to that point earlier about how it's sort of like this idealized figure can kind of open that door. And I wonder, I mean, not that we can always predict how the things that we put out into the world are going to be taken, but mm -hmm. but like what kinds of doors are you opening when you put media out into the world? Mm -hmm. Hold on. Rushvi's main infamy comes through a post that is claiming that we should legalize rape. That and you know you that you hear about rape and bang and like all this crap, it causes his downfall as his site's Return of the Kings later gets shut down and deplatformed. But that will take about ten years to happen. Rushvi takes his pop. Sorry, go ahead. I'm just. What is his background? Like, how do you get to the point where you think that normalizing rape, like legalizing it, should be okay? I think it comes a lot to do with this thought of politically incorrectness that I'm just going to say whatever the hell it is that's on my mind. Who but, cares about but, the consequences? But he, like, I mean, you wouldn't say that. No. Because that's not on your mind. No. Right? So, but it was on his mind. So how, how did that happen? That's what I wonder. That's a good question. That's a good point. And I think that there's a lot of, like, background as to, like, why did he become so obsessed with sex? 
-hmm. Why did he become so obsessed with landing so many women and not carrying this empathy? There must be something behind that, right? Mm -hmm. Never really get to find out with Roosh. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more of what, what happens after Roosh. <laughs> so Roosh V takes his popularity mainstream and starts his own site called Return of the Kings, where not only he starts writing about pickup culture, but so do a lot of the contributors. Roosh then, of course, starts writing about how feminism sucks, always happens, and then about what he calls neo-masculinity or something that blends traditional masculinity, a rejection of Western degeneracy, and his version of biology. Whatever. <laughs> Roosh B becomes very popular in the blogging world of PUAs and later the men's right movement. Roosh said that he doesn't call himself an MRA, but believes in the cause. He cares about all the tenets of MRA stuff like divorce, saying from, this is from a right-wing newspaper, the Washington Times, quote, the more money that man has, the more she gets paid. The ultimate humiliation for husbands is to pay alimony for a woman who then takes care of her, quote, bad boy lover in his former bed. If you take away incentive for a woman to remain a wife or to be loyal, she, this is, and of course, anti-feminist saying the whole point of feminism is to absolve women or all responsibility for their actions while shaming and criminalizing masculinity. This is something that I hear today <laughs> from politicians <laughs> sometimes. And another quote, when your masculinity is being shamed to Obsolescence. When your masculinity is being shamed into obsolescence by the feminist elite, when women are repeatedly passing on you for bad boys, and when no one seems to give a damn that you've had a respectable career where you've contributed meaningfully to society in some way, you'd have self-esteem issues too. Which is kind of like telling on yourself a bit too. He definitely has self-esteem issues too. Mm -hmm. Like, doesn't it feel that way? It sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, now the court is interesting because his views are going to be adopted later by the insult movement. Mm -hmm. This idea that the bad boys are taking over women and nice guys are finishing last. Which is like, so he's, but he's turning bad then because that's his justification. Yeah, that's his justification. Yeah, that's his justification for not only supporting the men's rights movement, but also being like, I'm a bad boy. This is the idea of the bad boy, but also like. But, but men should actually do this to become bad boys because the, like the women are just just having sex with the bad boys. It's a weird circular yeah, logic. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> we could probably pick that apart, but that's okay. Yes. Let's not waste our time. This is an easy pick-apart thing for, for Roosh mm -hmm. B. Roosh's ultimate demise, and what he's doing now is honestly not that important. I'll tell you that he's now a, he's, he's really big into religion. He's really big into kind of like this Christian masculinity that like everything we should do for, is for God. I don't know. Uh, v is whatever like he's he's honestly what like i'm glad that he got the platform however for a brief period of time in the 2010s he becomes one of the most controversial figures in the manosphere well people protesting his speaking events and even get them to be canceled i even remember this an event that was supposed to happen in edmonton getting shelved it prompted a lot of hand rigging even from politicians Roosh then becomes super religious and shuts down Return of the Kings because Amazon and PayPal stopped taking money from them. Mm -hmm. By the way, that is a lesson to be learned. If you ever want to like try to de-platform specific people, go after the money. Mm -hmm. That's a story. However, what's important with him and why I wanted to highlight him is that his blogging and writing about these ideas were part of something bigger that was churning because of the internet and what was happening in the world. So the idea of being able to just kind of throw this on the internet and people just picking them up. 31,000 members in his, in his forum, eh? That it was suddenly so available. Yeah. Spread. 
This is a major part of the manosphere, the quote-unquote manosphere. Yeah. This episode of Modern Manhood is brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network and the Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group. And once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. The Edmonton Community Foundation also has something called Vital Science, which is an annual checkup conducted by the foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council. And it's to measure how the community is doing. And this year's focus is to make ends meet in Edmonton. So if you want to learn more, check out ecfoundation.org. So it's ecfoundation.org. Do you ever feel like just a number? A digit? A denominator? A decimal? Another cog in the big bank machine? Waiting on hold? Online? Never on time? And always on your dime? Like your worth is only calculated by your net worth. In a world full of numbers, it's nice to know there's a place where you're not one. Connect First Credit Union. Bank on a brighter future. Now, remember, early 2000s, we were in the middle of the whole war on terror, where people were wanting to be a little bit more edgy because of what was happening in the world. In the world of gender politics, though, in the 2000s was kind of a turning point for feminism. This is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. The third wave was much more inclusive of women and girls of color than the first or second waves have been. In reaction and opposition to stereotypical images of women as passive, weak, virginal, virginal, okay. <laughs> passive, weak, virginal, and faithful, or alternatively as domineering, demanding, slutty, and emasculating, the third wave redefined women and girls as assertive, powerful, and in control of their own sexuality. In popular culture, this redefinition gave rise to icons of powerful women that included the singers Madonna, Queen Latifah, Mary G. Blige, among others. And the women depicted in television series such as Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Sex and the City, and Girlfriends, media programming for children increasingly depicted smart, independent girls and women in lead roles, including Disney heroines such as Mulan, and Helen Parr and her daughter Violet in The Incredibles, the television characters such as Dora and Dora the Explorer, of course, Carly and Sam from iCarly, and Sesame Street's first female lead, Abby Dabby, who debuted in 2006. But when you get deeper, you start to understand that this is around the time that the term intersectionality took hold. Knowing that women of color were shut out from the first and second wave of feminism, it was understood that feminists wanted to make sure to include them in the movement. The third wave was connected by two events. This is from the NSS Magazine article titled The History of Third Wave Feminism. The first is the televised testimony of Anita Faye Hill, a lawyer and, and university professor in which she sued Judge Clarence Thomas, a candidate for the Supreme Court of Sexual Harassment. Hill testified before a Senate Judicial Committee made up of all white men. The votes were resulted result of 52 votes in favor and 48 against, so Thomas was appointed to the Supreme Court. Do you know who Justice Ted Clarence Thomas is? No. He, there's a, if you really want to know the whole history to listeners, there's a four-part series on Behind the Bastards about Clarence Thomas. It's really interesting. What you don't need to know right now, he is Supreme Court Justice right now. He's also one of the main justices that turned down Roe Ro v. Wade to oh. the abortion law in the U.S. <clears throat> this testimony of Anita Faye Hill 
was very important. It, it was really reminiscent of what was going on with Brett Kavanaugh and his televised when he wanted to be a judge, a Supreme Court judge. There was Dr. Ford who accused him of sexual harassment and rape when he was younger. This became televised as well, too. Kind of the same idea. So this kind of like really energized a lot of the feminists during this time. Hmm. The second event coincides with the start of the riot girl movement in Olympia, Washington. Until then, punk was male territory, but several female activists, feminist activists, began to create zines and form bands such as Bratmobile, Seven Year Bitch, or Heavens to Betsy. Covering out an underground alternative and starting to wear Doc Martens. Doc Martens are very cool, still very cool. In those years, Kathleen Hanna, singer of Bikini Kale, worked on a zine in which the Riot Girl Manifesto appeared, which took sides against a society that says that girl is equivalent to dumb, bad, and weak. We love Kathleen Hanna. You saw that, you saw that documentary. Yeah, it was great. really good. Yeah. yeah. What's it called again? Mm -hmm. The Punk Singer? Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Anyway. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I really like Bikini Kale. I think they're a great band. One of those zines was called Girl Power, and this became the slogan for girls in the 90s and early 2000s, made popular, of course, by the Spice Girls. Yeah. Did you like the Spice Girls? I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they, they hit right when I was at the, that kind of teeny bopper age. So Yeah. Did it, when you listened to the Spice Girls and Girl Power, did it made you feel more empowered as a woman? Mm, or I as mean, a girl, I mean, at that time? Yeah, probably. Not in any sort of like foundation or like fundamental way because I probably wasn't thinking about things critically at that point in my life. Mm -hmm. I was still living in a small town and yeah. like, yeah, critical discourse around issues like this wouldn't come until several years later when I went to university in a bigger city. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like it, it was sort of like, oh, cool. And it, yeah, it was, it was a, a thing to do, but I guess that wasn't fundamentally like shifting anything. So it was still safe. Right. Right. It was definitely a safe way like when i think about the spice girls and like their thought of girl power is very like candy coated yeah but also felt like yeah like like you're right safe is a good word like parents were able to just be like oh yeah that's just, this is cool like mm -hmm. like like they're cool to talk about these things too right so yeah and like the boys or the dads would have been like oh look at what the girls are doing now that's cute you know like it's not like uh it was actually going to change anything mm -hmm. at least from my perspective yeah for sure no I appreciate that. Yeah. This is a time when violence against women became a main big feminist talking point and also started the rise of protests like slut walks. Do you know what slut walks are? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you tell everyone what slut walks are? It's a walk, right, where women get together and just sort of denounce bigotry against them, I guess. Like, the, you know, the that it's okay to be sexual and it doesn't mean that you deserve to be raped. Yeah. It was kind of like a take back the night kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like you know, the the idea that women were scared to to walk in the night because they're, uh, and I'm sure it's a very real fear yeah. of being sexually harassed or raped. Mm -hmm. This is kind of like the idea that we can walk in whatever we want, whatever clothes we care about, and this is an empowering thing. People shouldn't bug us about this. So this mm -hmm. is giving okay, a big protest. This stuff. Yeah. Age and gender didn't matter at this march. It was about rights and justice. People taking part in what's become known as a slut walk, a phenomenon which started in protest against a policeman who apparently told students in Canada they should avoid dressing in a provocative way to avoid being attacked. I think it's a huge misconception to say that somehow a short skirt um, a short skirt creates rape because I've never seen a correlation which shows 
that centimetres of skirt correlated with the number of rapes. Um, I think, as somebody said at Slut Walk Toronto, when it happened to me, I was wearing skiing. This lasted well in the 2000s, but but by the 2000s, this branch of feminism was evolving and shaping through the rise of blogging, including feminist writers like Jessica and Vanessa Volanti and blogs like Feministing and Jezebel. However, for men, it was more the same. The MRAs and other anti-feminists of the 90s found a new home in the web and honestly didn't change much of what was to say. We'll talk about some of the talking points in a bit, but what we can say now is in the 2000s, the cultural political incorrectness was in vogue through the rise of magazines like Vice and programs like South Park, which were huge in the 2000s. Mm, yes, they were. It was a time of hipster, ironic, postmodernist culture. So kind of being counterculture was not only popular, but cool. The rise of the internet was important in these communities to spread. And Rushvian is formed for a big part of the leading anti-feminist and misogynistic versions of the Manosphere. So, the Manosphere, what is it? Well, it's a collection of blogging websites that encompass the MRA communities, the pickup artist community, and the nascent men-going-their-own-way community, or MGTOW, mm. and then the new incel communities. The term Manosphere is a portmanteau of what blogging was called, the blogosphere, and man, of course. And it didn't become popular until the late 2000s. The most popular of these sites were Rouge V's, as we talked about, incels.is, PUA Hate, Slut Hate, the MGTOW Forum, and AVFM, which stands for A Voice for Men, the leading sites for MRAs. Head up by one Paul Elam. And we're going to talk a lot more about Paul Elam a bit. Let's do it. Yeah. So Paul Elam was born in 1957 from a write-up in BuzzFeed News titled, quote, How Men's Rights Leader Paul Elam Turned being a deadbeat dad into a money-making movement, which we'll get to why in a minute here. His father, Gerald, was a rigid authoritarian, army veteran who was physically abusive and violent to Elam and his older brothers. His mother, Anne, was a nurse, as well as being a very hardworking housewife who took care of her children. Yet in Elam's eyes, there was something wrong with the picture. It took me a long time to figure out what it wasn't, but it took me a long time to figure out that it wasn't my father who was in charge. In his words, Elam served in the military and then spent years being an addictions counselor, and this is where he saw what he called gender feminism at play in regarding to therapy. From his own personal write-up in AVFM, quote, We began to identify and treat masculinity as a disease, not the addiction. The preferred treatment modality was emasculation, and the profession proceeded with that wholesale. Or as once a psychotherapist once told me, just before being paid to address a group of male clients, I love to take men's macho bullshit and shove it down their throats. Now, as a vacuum, this doesn't sound much different than any other MRA you might find in the 80s and 90s or even now. The idea that people are trying to think of masculinity as a disease, I mean, that's like the the main argument against the word toxic masculinity, Mm -hmm. which we'll talk later about as to why this is not the case. So Elam left that world because, quote, the old saying goes, you can't fight City Hall. That may be true, but it's nothing compared to fighting Titty Hall. Not even close. Mouth just dropped over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Paul Elam. By the way, I don't know if Paul Elam, that's his real name, because if you notice that Elam, if you say backwards, is male. Oh, yeah. So I don't, I I haven't found out if that's his real name or not. But anyways, this is the time it's called now the red pill moment. Paul doesn't say what years this all happened. However, in an interview with Aaron Pizzi, another ex-feminist turned MRA, he read Warren Farrell's The Myth of Male Power, which we talked a lot about before, and changed his worldview. 
He even started to write letters to the Houston Chronicle about, quote, opportunistic feminism. So his penchant for writing was there. But again, like we saw with Rush V, the internet made it more opportunistic for him. He started blogging in 2008 under the pseudonym The Happy Misogynist and made thousands of dollars in a few days to launch A Voice for Men that same year. By the way, what did you think about Elam's thought about psychotherapy? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, what was his quote there? What did you think about that? I think mm, it's such a complex issue, right? Because mm-hmm. machismo can be very problematic, but it's also adaptive. It wouldn't exist if it weren't. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's not so much about the men and their issues, although, you know, as a therapist, that's what you're targeting is the individual. But it's about the social situations and influences that create and reinforce machismo and make that a viable coping mechanism. Sure. The idea that masculinity is a disease, like that's like saying life is a disease. Like it's yeah. just such a vague, broad, like masculinity just exists. It's this, and there are different forms of it. Some, yeah. And each one has consequences. And some of them are desirable consequences. And some of them are things that we'd prefer not to have. So... Yeah, it's interesting. I can see how from that sort of, you know, we're using toxic masculinity, that sort of, or macho masculinity, that perspective, then talking about feelings or, you know, having respectful conversations could feel like emasculation because it is stripping down some of those masculine characteristics. Mm -hmm. But it's ultimately, again, like I come back to the idea of cause and effect, right? So if you have, if you interact with people in certain ways, they're going to respond to you in certain ways. And if you interact with them in more, I guess, respectful or communicative or empathic ways, then they'll respond differently. Right. So it's really like what your goals are. So it just sounds to me like his, he's very attached to this idea of masculinity being a particular shape and form. Yeah. And he wants to kind of like... <clears throat> I wonder what it would be like in the 80s and 90s uh, when he was he was uh, practicing. Because mm-hmm. <clears throat> I do, like I emphasize with him and being like, this may have been the case in the 80s and 90s that we didn't think about mm-hmm. the, the idea of machismo as this more societal-based aspect. Like, for example, The Will to Change, like Bell Hooks, a book, came out in 2004. Like that, that is mm-hmm. um, a long time from the time that he was sucking. And yeah. that was a more empathetic view of like what it, what it, with this idea of like toxic masculinity being the societal force. And we kind of have a better understanding of that case. At the same time, though, this also, <laughs> he really just, like a lot of MRAs would be like, feminism is the issue here. This like mm-hmm. making women empowered is the problem here, right? And, that's, and like, I would want to know like, what about that is the issue? Right. It's like, maybe there is an issue in there. There's something going on for these guys. They wouldn't be upset if there weren't. Mm-hmm. But and so this is, I guess, my part of my perspective on just social changes, social justice, that kind of stuff is that like it's really easy to get into black and white sort of territory. Yeah, for sure. And that's important for, again, that that idealistic sort of like what is possible, what is potential, but on a practical level, like. We need to sort through some of the details in order for change to take place. Totally. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Yeah. It's it's strange that he was like doing this and all of a sudden just couldn't really 
I don't know, pick apart these kind of situations and just, and just kind of keep at it. And just shows me the type of person that he is, honestly. Mm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I would say something about him. And I think also like you and I have talked before too about like different models of how people approach. So I'm thinking men in addictions counseling probably have some deeper seated issues and probably have particular patterns of interacting with life and with their partners and, and the way that you know, domestic violence and those sorts of things were, which aren't necessarily correlated with addiction or like in this context, like part of the issue. But I don't know. I think addiction for men often goes along with a lot of anger. Too. Absolutely. Yeah. And so just the way that certain issues, right, like men's problems are framed, makes it tough for men to actually get support and help from some of those like perspectives. Yeah. That makes sense. So then there's maybe Paul is reacting to some of that stuff as well, which is fair. It's fair, especially in the 80s and 90s, yeah. right? I feel like like during that time, there might have been way less support mm -hmm. for, for men specifically talking through that kind of lens of trying to heal the like either anger, grief or stress and anxiety underneath yeah. the, whatever was happening with addictions instead of just being like, no, this is you're being a misogynist and yeah, that's which, be the end of it, right? Yeah, which is really devaluing to the person to say you're just a misogynist, like you just need to get over it. Get right? over it, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, that said, like, I don't know that Paul's approach is any better. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> as, you'll, as we'll soon find out. So A Voice to Men since then has been, and to this day, has been the primary websites for MRA thought and discourse. Although they've tried to market themselves as the reasonable discussion of MRA thought, for example, they've done conferences called the International Conference for Men's Issues and hosted many different types of writers, including people like Aaron Pizzi, Karen Strawn, and of course, Warren Farrell, the godfather of MRAs. Their main discussion points were one we have heard from MRAs before, mainly about child custody, parental rights, and in the late 2000s and 2010s, really put their attention on male victim of domestic violence and false rape accusations. These are the main things that MRAs talk about all the time. Child custody, parental rights, false rape, rape accusations, male victims of domestic violence. Which again, all these things in a vacuum, I think, are things to talk about. Like, like I think in a nuanced conversation, are really good conversation topics. The way that they approach it, though, is not a good way conversation topic. Paul likes to claim them that AVFM, or A Voice for Men, as a, is a human rights organization. However, unlike other human rights organizations, it provides no services, offers no legal aid, and litigates no cases. Mm -hmm. It does not regularly lobby lawmakers, advise candidates, produce public policy proposals, or original research. All it does is talk and write. That's all it is. So mm -hmm. I don't know why I would call itself human rights organizations, but it's just mm -hmm. the way it is. I've heard from feminists my whole life that men need to know that they need to learn that no means no. I'm sorry. Women need to learn that no means no. Women need to learn to say no when they mean it and not say no when they don't mean it. And we raise them to send these mixed messages. And there is confusion that comes from that, but I'm not saying that justifies anybody taking advantage of somebody. Uh, I just think that we need a much more nuanced understanding of how human beings really communicate with each other about sex. And, and we're never, ever going to get that from feminist ideologues. I'm just kind of... And I think human rights normally apply to all humans, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I understand like human rights organizations, like there's some human rights organizations that say like we want to support 
like refugees from Africa, for example. Mm -hmm. And that's a specific type of population. But again, like I'm making the point that this, all, all they're doing is just saying things. Like a human rights organization should offer something mm -hmm. to the people that they're being affected, but they don't. And I wonder, and this is a big statement maybe, but I wonder if part of that is because with human rights issues, there's an actual like tangible issue to tackle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point to make. <laughs> That's good. Episode's over, guys. <laughs> We're done here. <laughs> you nailed it. But during the late 2000s and into the 2010s, AVFM and Paul in particular became much less about thoughtful discussion and more into abuse and harassment. From the BuzzFeed article, quote, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the claim that Elam and his friends are merely trying to have a conversation about the rights of men in modern society is bogus. What it's really about is a definition, what it's really about is a defamation of women as a group. That's called misogyny, said Mark Potok, a senior fellow at the Southern Poverty Law Center. AVFM started something called Bash a Violent V-Word, B-Word Month, so men could get revenge on women who were also violent. Paul himself said that it was, if he were to be in a jury stand for a rape case and man was on trial, that he would state him not to be not guilty regardless of facts. Hmm. AVFM also registered another website called Register Her, quote from the Southern Poverty Law Center. It included women deemed to have falsely accused men of rape or domestic violence, others for having protested men's rights activist gathering, or those Elam simply disagreed with. The effect of Register Her was an explosion of online harassment. And according to BuzzFeed, in 2011, after feminist writer Jessica Volante's personal information was added to Register Her, and Elam went after her on his radio show, we're going to be all over her like Ron Jeremy on a drug idol bimbo, he said, calling her chicken shit and a scared little girl. Volante was so inundated with threats that she contacted the FBI and she said, left her house until things died down. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, this is awful, and obviously, and not obviously, this will be an important tactic of what is to come next. However, I did want to talk about Paul Elam's private life a little bit because he is a bit of a hypocrite. Actually, a big hypocrite. <laughs> in, in that BuzzFeed News article, which we, which we teased, called How Men's, right Paul, How Men's Right Leader Paul Elam Turned Into Being a Deadbeat Dad Into a Money-Making Movement, it shows in incredible detail how Elam is not only someone who has abandoned his own children, quote, from that article. For example, although Elam compares the family court system's treatments of fathers to Jim Crow, he abandoned his biological children not once but twice. Although Elam says that fathers are forced to pay child support like it was a mafia protection money, he accused his first wife of lying about being raped so he could relinquish his parental rights and avoid paying child support. And... People come to Paul for advice on parenting, even though he has two estranged biological children that he did not raise or take care of, said Bonnie, who, along with her mother Susan, Elam's first wife, spoke publicly for the first time to BuzzFeed News. So, sorry, Bonnie was his kid then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes, Bonnie was a kid. Yeah. He has a bunch of kids that he doesn't see. Hmm. And there was, in the article, it's actually a really, really good article because it shows this history of his personal life as a father and how one of his kids actually kind of came back to him and he was trying his best to parent him, but he just couldn't do it well. Because it, it takes time to learn that skill. Yeah. And he just doesn't seem like an empathetic person. 
and so, like I said, it, it just it just seems so hypocritical of, of, what, of what he's saying. He's he needs to protect fathers' rights and fathers' things, and he can't even do it himself, right? Mm-hmm. The article also shows someone who has incredible anger issues, which are connected to racist outbursts. Thanks. The article details when one of his estranged children met Paul again and how he was during that time. I'll tell you, it's not good. I would encourage people to read that article and also encourage that when I looked up Paul Elam, that that article was the first thing that popped up. However, Paul is still talking and writing, and this is from 2021, a year ago. Quote, that's the way of the romantic model, a not-so-benevolent female dictatorship where being a liar and a yes-man is written into the Constitution. How many simps are out there right now blowing money that they don't really have, groveling, making false promises because they're being played by shallow, parasitic women? That's the romantic model where sexual attraction is a license to lose your fucking mind, especially these days when being a shallow, parasitic female is considered good breeding. This is words from Paul Elam, 2021. It doesn't make sense to me. No. <laughs> An MRA organization started popping up, including one that was around before the National Coalition for Men as well as the Canadian Association for Equality, or better known as CAFE. This is, re- this is where people like Karen Strothern and so-called called Honey Badgers Brigade started their quest for infamy. So, MRAs. MRAs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is where most of the major MRAs have stationed in AVFM, a lot of them, and also where a lot of the discourse continues on with men's rights activists through A Voice for Men even though Paul Elam and his organization are shitty. I don't know what better way to put it. However, they, they are a main hub for that right now. Yeah. So we also need to look back what was going on of the time of the late 2000s and early 2010s. We talked a little bit at the start of the, of the show. If we think about time, not only in politics, but cultural war stuff, two events come to mind. 2008 financial crisis that affected many Americans and many people worldwide financially. And then politically later when we noticed how governments responded to this, meaning that, you know, bailing out banks Mm -hmm. and not really protecting people in general. This also led to movements like Occupy Wall Street in 2011. These movements also, along with other movements throughout the world, like the Arab Spring, were deep in anti-establishment thinking. Also, another big event. Barack Obama became president. He's the first African-American president came into office in 2008 and didn't leave until 2016. As much as this is a signal for progressive politics in the U.S., this also led to an organized conservative backlash, which led things into the Tea Party movement, whose energy led directly to so-called Tea Party politicians being elected, but also directly and indirectly led to the Trump presidency. So you're seeing from not only from people in the far left and the far right ideas that the government wasn't working for people. Mm -hmm. This is a very simplified version of things. Obviously, all these things have way more nuance to it. But I wanted to note how much more pro, how much protest life and targeted organization was happening. This, of course, coincides with the rise of social media, not only through Facebook and Twitter, but specifically through sites like Reddit and 4chan. In the masculinity, this is happening as well. So, for example, in, in Reddit, subreddits like our men's right and our incels and our MGTOW took rise to gather these people, mostly men, to not only share articles from places like AVFM and the Return of the Kings, but also other people and mostly right-wing news sites like Breitbart, and most of the readership skewed right-wing. 4chan is an unregulated message board site where a lot of people could just post honestly whatever they wanted. Have you ever wandered into 4chan? I have not. No. Don't do it. Yeah. But 4chan is 
I've been into 4chan before. It is an <laughs> it's an absolutely ridiculous website where people just post whatever it is. The idea was this idea of like free speech where people can just put whatever they want. But when you give like this unmitigated free speech, you get a lot of racism, you get a lot of sexism, you get a lot of misogyny. Mm -hmm. Like it's just like constant. And it's a constant yeah. barrage where you just basically just become numb to it. And mm -hmm. it just becomes this thing that happens. So yeah, 4chan and then later 8chan and every all the, all the other chans as well too, which also started a lot of other conspiracy theories, which we're not going to get into here today. <laughs> it was here where a lot of people gathered to talk about crap. And this is a lot of culture pot nonsense happening in these sites at the time. A lot of them mostly was unregulated. Not so much that, oh, this person said a bad thing and it needs to be canceled. It was more like, oh, this person said an actively illegal thing and no one did anything. Mm. <laughs> and like death threats, for example, mm. or doxing. Or harassment to people. Like, like those are really gross stuff. Like not even just like, oh, this person said a problematic thing. It was yeah. literally those kind of things. And the users of the site started big targeting campaigns to either make fun of something or feel aggrieved about something. And so the biggest misogynistic targeted campaign led to something called Gamergate. So you said you've heard a little bit about Gamergate. Oh, yeah. What do you know about Gamergate? Well, about Anita Sarkeesian and then just like generally like it started with women playing video games right and then wanting to be treated like respectful human being respected human beings and the men kind of not not really being happy with that and then doxing yeah 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 and this we'll talk a little bit more about what what actually kind of happened but i'll also kind of relate to and connect it to what do you remember what avfm was doing with the sites register her like harassing women because of Mm. their thought of like, oh, this person like aggrieved a man and stuff like that. And so they registered this website. They took those same tactics and just used those as well too. But not only also like this whole other internet culture also happened too at the same time. Mm. I will also put in a bunch of links as well. So you can take a read more about this because it's kind of, I'm just going to fly through this. Okay. So Gamer Game was a big clusterfuck, a lot of culture war things happening at once. Again, I don't want to go over everything that happened because it's a lot, but I want to note how these things evolved and how people responded to them. So, which I think is the most interesting and important part. So again, do you remember when I talked about AVFM's regist site register her, which allowed a bunch of people of their users to harass a bunch of feminist writers, including Jessica Volanti. Now, people harassing feminists is not a new thing by this time. Um, Tale as old as time, I would say. However, this concentrated online effort that register her uses was an early example that by that time, Gamergate starts is the way in which misogynists and anti-feminists are using to get their ideas out and also make life very hard and dangerous for feminists and women in general. So in 2013, Anita Sarkeesian, just like you said, who is a feminist YouTuber and culture war writer, wants to start a video game series titled Tropes versus Women in Video Games, whose goal is to highlight how women are portrayed in video games. It's kind of a feminist critique of video games and honestly it was nothing groundbreaking at the time in, in feminist media critique this this is what i'm around like the idea of like how, how women have been treated badly through media however this was taking aim at gaming and gamers in particular an audience as you might know heavily populated by young men mm -hmm. did you play a lot of games when you were younger like when i was a lot younger yeah 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 and then when do you stop playing the games mm -hmm. say I, I don't know, like in my teens, probably. Yeah. Yeah, just when I was a kid, I played a lot. Do you remember a lot of the guys around you playing a lot of video games? I think all the kids did, honestly. It was probably before the age where we really, you know, divided by sex or gender. Right. 
like pre-puberty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. But then, yeah, after I think men's like boys still kept playing and the girls didn't as much. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's it's interesting because you know I I play video games every now and again. Mm -hmm. um, I'm happily not like like addicted to playing like eight hours of video games and stuff like yeah. that. But there was a time when I played a lot of video games, and it is very much its own little subculture, right? And it definitely like controlled and and uh, and just heavily populated by by men in general yeah and so when it's a really important social activity for a lot of guys right? absolutely and still is yeah. right like especially when online gaming came, came exactly came to play and like you hear a lot of people just kind of playing online and if you've ever entered an online gaming forum you're going to hear the some of the worst shit in the world but but it's also a place where People do connect, like young men do connect. And that's something that we can't take for granted. Mm -hmm. uh, so when Arnita Sarkeesian started taking aim at video games, this kind of became like, for them, like the sacred cow that they, they, shouldn't, be, they shouldn't be connecting to, right? Um, and, and of course, a lot of male gamers were pissed. They immediately started to try to take down Arnita's videos as they came out. By the time the sixth video in the series came out in 2014, Sarkeesian mentioned that she had to flee her home due to threats made to her. Mm -hmm. At around the same time, video game programmer Zoe Quinn, whose main claim to fame was an RPG designed to help people battle depression called Depression Quest, broke up with his ex-boyfriend programmer Aaron Joni. Aaron, feeling jilted, wrote a ridiculously long breakup post. Quoted by the Vox article titled Gamergate, Here's Why Everybody in the Video Game World is Fighting. This is from Vox. Yoni and said that Quinn had cheated on him. And one of those instances was with a writer for the influential games website, Kotaku. Kotaku investigated, finded no wrongdoing on the part of either its writer, Nathan Grayson, or Quinn. Thousands of comments on the matter were expunged from normally freewheeling 4chan and Reddit for reasons that, were immediate, that weren't immediately clear. And a DMCA takedown notice was filed against a YouTube video using footage for one of Quinn's games. Quinn was harassed endlessly via Twitter, her phone, and other methods of communication. For some reason, a lot of anti-feminists did not like Depression Quest and the accolades it was getting, and pointed to this blog post as proof that there was all this conspiracy behind it. Hmm. In fact, Gamergate was called the Quinspiracy before <laughs> fucking actor Adam Baldwin first used the hashtag Gamergate. <laughs> he was the first person to use the hashtag really? Gamergate. Yeah. Zoe herself was harassed, sent death and rape threats, and according to Deadspin, quote, Fevered accusations that Quinn had traded sex for press began to float around online, and Quinn's sexual history and nude photos were spread around 4chan and IRC. Mm. There's a bunch of details that I'm missing, of course, but the end result of both Quinn and Sarkeesian's harassments was a high fever pitch of this us versus them misogynistic culture world that it floated even before the gamers or the niche idea of gaming journalism became itself. That summer, the Boston Globe called it gamers, Gaming Summer of Rage. Mm -hmm. It was a tough one, I remember. Yeah, it was a tough year. It was a tough year. I remember I didn't know anything about this, and all of a sudden, it was just, like, yeah. all over the place. Yeah. Like, and I just, I didn't know what it was about until I had to, like, really, like, dig into be like, what are, what are we talking about here? Because mm -hmm. I remember, like, this idea of, like, oh, this is all about, like, gaming journalism. But then you really think about it, it's like, no, this is just, like, bullshit. This is, like, bullshit harassment stuff. Like, this, this can't be this small thing right do you know what i mean sometimes well often like when i look at stuff like this i just kind of take a step back and look at like the dynamics that are going on in it not the actual content of it but mm -hmm. like what's really happening here like they're talking about you know 
like this is a personal accusation against mm-hmm. someone and for some reason a bunch of people are kind of latching on to that and then they're taking it kind of way out of context. Yeah, way out of context. Yeah. yeah. It's really it was really bad and it and it didn't help that sites like Reddit and 4chan really just up the ante with this. Like they really up the the heat on it as well. I think without those sites you mean the users or the actual sites by taking down posts and stuff? The sites by taking down posts, but also <clears throat> the users using that site. Because 4chan was, is, was a site that was very pro-free speech. So a lot of commenters just started like just amping this up. Mm-hmm. And Reddit was doing the same kind of thing. Like anytime you see, like if you went to like the men's rights subreddit or if you went to the gaming subreddit, there's all these posts about it and people would just became so infatuated by this. By yeah. This there was something really interesting about this for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because it, you know what it kind of reminds me of the, like the Johnny Depp Amber Heard mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's just like this, like, it should be this small story, right? Mm-hmm. But people just put a lot of their feelings into it. Yeah. And it just, every single, but then you see like a lot of news stories just kept popping up, popping up. And so we felt like this is something that we need to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. When really like all of this is not really something that unless, that people should be paying attention. Like Anita Sarkeesian's uh, series isn't like, like I've seen the series. It's good, but I'm also yeah. like, it's not groundbreaking. It's just kind of like a one-on-one. Right? Yeah, it's a one-on-one thing. And Zoe Quinn's game, like Depression Quest, again was good, but nothing. I would. I'm. Just, it's not like Super Mario Brothers. It's not like. <laughs> well, I, mean? I haven't seen this. I'm wondering, like, oh, like, would that be helpful for some of my clients? I'm like, sure it is. I wish, I'm sure but, it is. You know, but it, it's not like something that was like taking the world by storm. For example, like it wasn't like this this game that was like. Like, oh my God, everybody needs no. to play this game. You yeah. know what I mean? That's what I mean by saying Super Mario Brothers. It's not like this. Right. Like the world phenomenon, yeah, right? it wasn't like <clears throat> big enough to warrant the amount of tension that it got. Exactly. And yeah. And so that's the, I don't know. And there's a lot of feelings involved with the, the game. There still is. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, one of the biggest and most notorious commentators to come out of the whole Gamergate debacle was Milo Yiannopoulos. Do you know who Milo Yiannopoulos mm-hmm. is? No. He's kind of a right-wing shit disturber. He became really popular in the gaming gate era. Like he wrote a lot about this, like like very anti anti Anita and anti Zoe Quinn mm-hmm. stuff. And then he started writing for Breitbart during his time about Gamergate. And because of the popularity of the controversy, he became a very popular alt right figure almost overnight. Mm. He went on a lot of talk shows. He went on the Bill Maher show. He kept he's a he was a gay man who kept saying. Like, even though I'm gay, I still hate the gay people kind of thing. Like, just like a real hmm. shit disturber. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if some of these people just get attention because they are entertaining in the sense that it's something novel. Like, if we, you know, like to be a gay person who doesn't like gay people, like, that's like, what? Like, how do I make sense of that? Like, there's something yeah. that doesn't make sense that grabs people's attention. So either like this sense of like novelty and unfamiliarity or on the other hand, like this sense of it, something in there more with the men's rights stuff, but like resonating on a deep level mm-hmm. and then giving people like a di- or a, a script to make sense of some of the stuff that they're experiencing and feeling. Because yeah. this is how we come up with our ability to talk about different issues is by being 
exposed to discourse about it. Right? Yeah, so the, absolutely. The vocabulary and the framework. But then, of course, you know, with these cultural narratives comes, again, particular outcomes or yeah. consequences. And so, yeah, I guess I don't have any answers for this, but I'm just sort of thinking about how, like, how, which, which cultural narratives become popular and how, I guess maybe at some point in time, it'd be cool to figure out how to, like, shift those cultural narratives, get other ones to be popular. Yeah. And I think that's, well, I'm sure a lot of progressives and leftists are, are thinking about how to do that, right? Because mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of stuff that gets popped up in, like, alt-right and, and right-wing stuff that just gets just really just the fire just like really pulls up now and you saw you see this now with like freedom convoy or the QAnon or things like that they yeah. just really push up to the to the mainstream it's too bad that it's like a particular again like not so nuanced version mm -hmm. which like is easier intellectually to make sense of right if you're not someone who wants to dig deeper mm -hmm. and can give sort of like a space for your feelings to latch onto something and to to feel validated which is so important for us like right. everybody we need to feel validated and so if people are getting validation from this stuff but it's like that is almost like the underlying need there yeah i guess it's a good point the validate the lack of validation or the validation in it as well too yeah so it's, it's not like, like it doesn't matter so much that whether it's right or wrong it just feels it's just feels validating mm -hmm. yeah the attention feels validated yeah so if you want to learn more about the details of the saga, the Gamergate saga, uh, read, read a Deadspin article called The Future of the Culture Wars. The Future of the Culture Wars is here and it's Gamergate. And, you know, Deadspin is right in this. Uh, Gamergate becomes such a flame war that it split into conservative media and had people like Democratic former feminist and little Maria herself, Christina Hoff Summers, commenting on it. And what she says is really the heart of the matter for these gamer trolls. Clip a video of this. So. Okay. Summers argues in a video that the majority of men have played video games at that time compared to a minority of women. So why not have sexy women in video games? It just makes sense to her. There's also this idea that feminists are doing this to gamers, i.e., men, that they're going to squash their games and there's a conspiracy to it. Mm -hmm. This is very much in line to like the MRA, MGTOW, POA, incel stuff, that the system is making it so men are being prosecuted. And again, we hear this time and time again from a lot of misogynists, anti-feminists, and I, they're always wrong. No one's trying to like prosecute a bunch of guys. It's just, yeah. there's the idea that critique feels like prosecution, right? Like, Yeah. And I wonder if, again, just going back to that cultural narrative piece, we need to sort of look at some ways to explain critique that don't coincide with that sense of prosecution mm -hmm. that like make it more about, I don't know, productive discussion or bettering life for men or something right right like, but i mean that's a complex issue yeah absolutely and of course we will be remiss if we didn't mention that in may of 2014 elliot roger killed six people and injured 14 others and then killed himself Rod, the reason why i post this is rogers posted a youtube video ex explaining why he decided to do this and mentioned basically that he lived his life alone without a girlfriend and that is and that is payback time to life in general he blamed women specifically because, quote, I'm the perfect guy, and yet you throw yourself at these obnoxious men instead of me, supreme gentleman. 2014 became one of the worst years of Western misogyny. MRAs in the manosphere don't claim Rogers as their own, but it's hard to see this logic in his manifesto and the writings of the manosphere, not only during this time, but before. Rogers frequently went to sites like PUA Hate and Forever Alone, and he described himself as an incel. In incel community, he's regarded as a saint. 
and his act has led to another terrorist attack, the Toronto Van Attack. The Manosphere, this collection of misogynist web pages, groups, ideas, and factions were already a big force in the web, and their calling card was the Red Pill. The Red Pill, as you know, is a reference to the Matrix, and how taking the Red Pill will allow Neo to see life how it really is. And of course, the Wachowski sisters, or now sisters, like have mentioned that this was more of a trans narrative <laughs> instead of a, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it has continuously, they have continuously rejected any thoughts of the red pill as this yeah. MRA thing or whatever the case is. However, this was used by the Manosphere and others to quote it as, take the red pill to reject the idea that men are ruling the world, but actually they are the oppressed ones. This became a big motto for the AVFM and our men's rights and in 4chan. And later on, you will hear incels talk about taking the black pill, which we'll talk about in a later episode. However, in 2015, feminist Cassie J wanted to embed herself in the MRA community and provide the, what she mentions a quote, fair and balanced view to see what it was like, but couldn't find anyone to find her project. So she went on Kickstarter and raised more than $200,000 for her video, for her movie. A lot of the funding came from MRA sites like AVFM and people like Mike Cernovich, uh, another MRA and then slash Trumper who donated $10,000 and even got a uh, producer credit in the film. Even though Jay mentioned in an interview that in, from the Daily Dot that, quote, our five highest backer are neither MRA or feminist, I would say three out of the five of them didn't even know about the men's rights movement, but wanted to defend free speech. Still, a lot of MRAs and a lot of feminists took this film, The Red Pill, as a pro-MRA movie. If you watch it, You'll find sometimes where Jay does try to get a balanced view, including feminists like Michael Kimmel and Miss, the magazine Miss associate editor, Catherine Spiller. But ultimately, it platforms a lot of prominent MRAs, including people like Polydem, Aaron Pizzi, and of course, Warren Farrell. Warren Farrell. The film produced a lot of controversy over subject matter, where it finally got released in 2016, including a really weird one in the University of Calgary, in which the Wild Rose on campus, a political activist group on campus from the Wild Rose Party, they sent out an email titled, quote, Feminism is Cancer, to promote the screening of the Red Pill. Oh, the Wild Rose Party. Again, highlighting the opposite of what Jay th sought out to do, creating a fight between feminists and men. Regardless of what kind of credibility of how good this film is, it definitely has been used as a propaganda device for the MRA movement in general. And this idea, the so-called war between feminists and men, will continue. Rogers put it clearly in his manifesto, it was a war between him and women. The difference between what happened in Gamergate to what happened in the 70s to what happened in the 80s is that the internet has made it a much more dangerous ground for these culture wars to happen. The Manosphere in general harnessed online campaigns to get their message across, to sell books, to sell courses, to finance movies, but also to harass, manipulate media, docs, and stalk feminists they don't like. And this energy continues as in June 2016, Donald Trump comes down an escalator to say he's running for the president of the United States. End of story. Boom. <laughs> how are you feeling? Yeah, I think I'm just thinking about how, I, like, they, we used to have this big debate about is, you know, feeling or thinking like the best way to be in the world. And mm -hmm. it was such a dichotomy. And there's like this, this, I think a false dichotomy in the sense that, you know, it's it's one or the other and which one is the right one. You know, even if you, you know, let go of the idea that we need to be totally logical beings, like, you know, people, you know, what is the right way to be? 
And I, whenever I come up against a dichotomy, I think, well, if there's two sides, it's probably the case that both of them are true. So I would think like maybe women are ruling over men in some ways, right? Like it, right. men do seem to feel, some men do seem to feel very susceptible to, to yeah. you know, the influence of women and the lack of attention from women. And that seems to be a real problem for them. And of course, like, you know, I don't have to convince this audience that there's mm-hmm. systemic issues fighting against women as well. But I like this whole idea that we have to have the fight between these things. I think that's the problem. Right. Like, right. Ultimately, that there is a war going on. Like, let's just drop the war and figure out what's actually happening. <clears throat> I don't know. I'm and not I, someone who has a lot of energy for, like, fighting about stuff. Yeah. So, I know you don't, which yeah. is good. That's why I love you. <laughs> but also, I think without this fear, without this entitlement, with not entitlement, this aggrieved entitlement, as Michael mm-hmm. Kimmett would put it, mm-hmm. there wouldn't be this energy. And without this energy, a lot of these sites and websites and people and backers and movies, they don't get funding, right? And I think a lot of that is manufactured, right? A lot of that aggrieved mm-hmm. entitlement is manufactured. Like I just think of like the Freedom Convoy, for example. It's like what started as something that was supposed to be for like this allegedly the truckers right yeah allegedly we came because of the truckers and the truckers not getting the vaccine mandate and the truckers became this pot of of putting everything in there as much as possible including things like you know freedom of speech and the the prime ministry of justin trudeau and Mm -hmm. like everything that came up to it it just it just became this thing i see gamergate as kind of like the same thought Mm. was like the small little thing that was supposed to be just about gaming became this idea about how feminists are taking over the world, how men are being aggrieved and like they're taking over things like gaming and what comes next and slippery slope stuff. It's like mm-hmm. this aggrievement of like this and it, this energy just keeps reappearing every now and again. Mm. And it's like, well, like, how do we shut that down? Like, how do we just kind of lower the volume a bit and how do we yeah. kind of like lower the pressure? It's And it sounds like there is a real need for these people to be heard. Like if, if I'm understanding you correctly and if that's right, then there's like previously, like with Gamergate and with the Convoy, both are opportunities where people who haven't had a venue to really feel mm-hmm. heard by mainstream society, say. Sure, yeah. To feel heard. But then it's like they get so excited by that that they just start dumping everything and kind of lose focus. So I almost wish that people like the MRA folks had an opportunity to discuss their concerns and to be validated for them, but in like a receptive environment. Right. And not that people who are being attacked should necessarily be receptive to, yeah. 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 But because just psychologically, there's something really beautiful that happens when a person is received and actually validated in their concerns, where that pressure that you're talking about that sort of amplifies everything. And we can't, Ignore the fact that media, like, if they're getting clicks, then they will fuel that. Mm -hmm. That's, like, another dynamic, a social dynamic. Mm -hmm. But for people who are feeling like they're not able to get what they need out, those feelings do kind of, like, bubble and bubble, and then they explode if they're not dealt with. Mm -hmm. And for that kind of culture where, you know, having, like, a logic, rational dialogue or one that's like vulnerable and talking about really deep-seated feelings that's not part of the norm and so but that's kind of what needs to happen for stuff that has so much emotional intensity behind it totally totally 
So to have space or to make space somehow for that to happen. So yeah, so once these people feel heard, then they will become more open to hearing other people's points of views and to be open to sort of a reciprocal dialogue with people. I don't know, this is just like what I see in my practice, what I've seen with other people who have what are essentially like difficulty articulating their experience. They feel really oppressed, right? And it's because everything's so trapped inside them and they haven't maybe been given the opportunity to be safely received. Mm -hmm. And so once they are, though, um, and they, they are able to get that pressure that's built up inside them out and they come down and it's like they can come back into the real world and be like, wait a second, I'm not the only person in the world here. I'm not the only person in this discussion. I'm not the only person dealing with this stuff. So they feel this sense of shared community, but also they're open to help letting other people help them fix this problem, Mm -hmm. whatever their problem is. And so that being receptive, that's really hard, right? Right. When when you're, you're amped up because you're feeling vulnerable about something and you don't feel like you've got support to be able to help it. And that's the tough part about that sort of that type of masculinity is that often it precludes people from mm-hmm. reaching out to get help so that there's this sort of like yeah double bind like, absolutely what do you do? absolutely right like if you're if you're stuck into that kind of traditional mindset all a lot of it is very much um no i'm right like i like this defensive shield like if anybody attacks me i need to attack back mm-hmm. and if i let people in they're going to take advantage yes and that there's a lot of like that idea of that we need to feel does that they need to try to lower these barriers as much as possible to let that in. But how do we do that once it's already amped up? Right. It's like things like, like I keep going back to the, the freedom combo, I think, because I'm just like, this was such an amped up mm-hmm. thing that happened. Yeah. I felt really unsafe. Absolutely. Right. And, and I felt that same way too. Like it's really weird now to just look at a, someone flying a canadian flag and then mm-hmm. instead before it was just like this like meh this kind of like yeah someone flying this thing now it's just like ooh, like is this person thinking this way now like like yeah. it's it's a really weird situation to be in and i can't even imagine people who are during that time of gamergate for example to be like oh yeah i play video games people are like oh are you a misogynist texas now <laughs> Right, which isn't even helping their cause. Right. Most men probably aren't yeah. that way. Exactly. Right? So. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, what did you think about going through this history as well, too? A lot of it? A tip of an iceberg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of really intense stuff in there. And like, yeah, I'm so interested in the psychology mm-hmm. behind it. But there's this other piece that you know, when you're interacting with these folks in day-to-day life or you're, you know, seeing, you're in circles where you come into contact with them or you see this stuff online, like it's so, it can feel so overwhelming sometimes, I think. Like, honestly, I don't spend a ton of time, yeah. like, I mean, because I've been in school for the past yeah. several years, I think. <laughs> I don't think um, you would have either, regardless if you were in school. Yeah, I just, I feel like I have other person. things that... Yeah. that fuel me more mm-hmm. but not that i i want to ignore that this stuff exists it's mm-hmm. just i'm sort of kind of trying to think about like how maybe this is something each person has to figure out what's yeah. your unique way of like shifting the narrative or shifting your approach to engaging with this stuff how can you engage with it so that you can make a difference and do that sustainably for yourself and to support 
the rest of our community that needs supporting supporting yeah yeah for sure no i agree I agree that's a really good point and i think i'm going to leave it as that thanks so much for doing this you how, bet how did you how did you like you know you were a little worried to do it beforehand but now you're fine yeah after it's done <laughs> i just haven't done anything like this for a long time i haven't talked about any of this stuff for a long time and we're sitting in the dark here because it's very hot it's out hot right out now. Now, yeah. <laughs> a little bit sleepy had a long week but yeah no, it was it was fun. We talk about this stuff. Yeah, no, we talk about this a lot of this time too. Yeah. So I know so. you hear all my my rants and rambling, anyways. Yeah. So this is not new to you, but I'm so happy you did this. This is this is good. Thanks this is fun. Inviting me. Yeah. <laughs> so that was episode five, of the Manosphere. Um, 2010s is an interesting trip down memory lane uh, for myself. Um, just thinking about where I was during that time, and I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed. Um, Virginia as well too she was really nervous to do this but I think she sounds awesome with it. I hope you agree um, if you're sticking around this long to listen to me talk thank you by the way I really appreciate it I really hope that you are enjoying the season so far uh, if you are enjoying the season so far and you want to support what we do please go to nextgenmen.ca slash support uh, and you can join the online community of people who are supporting uh, a pro-feminist organization a pro-feminist discourse uh, a healthy discourse around masculinity um, so hopefully you could be able to support that as well too if you want to be a part of that conversation uh, and not be part of this nonsense that was the Matosphere and things that are going on for right now on the next episode, we are going to talk about, uh, continue on this path of the Manosphere, but also going to talk about what was happening after Donald Trump, after, um, you know, the situation that happened then and the Me Too movement and what was the masculinity discourse during that time as well, too. And we'll highlight, um, you know, one of the more prominent um, men's organization, the Proud Boys. So stick around for that. That's next week. Um, thank you so much for sticking around and yeah, we'll see you next time. Modern Manhood.